0: This morning, we continue our study through Essential Truth. We're going to look at the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And of all the things that we could be thankful for, is not at the top of our list, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life what an unbelievable and indescribable gift as I was preparing to preach this and looking over some things this morning I was reminded of the hymn oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise you got to have a thousand tongues to do it one tongue is just not enough over the last several weeks we've looked at the doctrine of God our great triune God Father, Son and Holy Spirit. When who said when Moses said show me your glory. All right. Here's who I am. The Lord. The Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and full of loving kindness and truth. A God of grace and a God of mercy but who also said, and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. He also is a God of justice. We've looked at the doctrine of Scripture, that the Bible is an absolute gift from God, revealed truth, inspired as God was at work in and through the human authors of the Bible to produce his word. It is wholly true and fully reliable in a word. It is inerrant and it is authoritative. It is the final rule for our beliefs and our behaviors. We have looked at the doctrine of angels and demons and Satan. What an incredible study of an unseen spiritual world. But we are so thankful to God who sends his angels, the scripture says, as ministering spirits sent out to render service to those of us who will inherit eternal life. In Psalm 91, that God will give his angels charge concerning his people. Amazing stuff. But also that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we urged ourselves to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We looked at the doctrine of mankind that we are created in the image of God, male and female, to glorify God by enjoying him forever, but that we are fallen in sin and desperate for the grace and mercy of God to come our way in Jesus Christ. Last week, Saul Gonzalez took a look at the doctrine of sin for us, And boy, I've heard nothing but tremendous stuff about what Saul did and how he did. In fact, one person said, man, he's going to have your job. So Saul, I hope you enjoyed it because that's the last time (laughs) you will. Obviously kidding. Maybe. This morning, the doctrine of Christ. I get to teach at the Cannecuck Institute every year. It's a group of young people up in Branson, Missouri, that spend a year in Branson to learn Bible and theology and ministry, and it's a wonderful time, and one of the things they have to do each and every year is write their belief statements. What do they believe about God? What do they believe about the Bible? What do they believe about angels and demons and Satan? What do they believe about mankind? What do they believe about sin? What do they believe about Jesus? They have to study hard and think it through and put it down on paper what it is they believe about these big ideas. And every once in a while when I'm teaching, I'll get off on a tangent about Jesus and I'll tell them, listen, I'm about to write your paper for you because I'm going to give you eight big ideas about Jesus Christ that I think get to the very root of who Jesus is. And so, I want to share those eight big ideas with you. If you have a Bible, though, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. There are a handful of texts, all of the scriptures, we could say, that we could turn to in the study of Jesus. But this one, I think, gets as close as any other in walking us through the career of the Christ, we might say. Those of you who know Philippians 2, I'll be taking it a bit out of context, but I'll come back to the context in the end. But here Paul sets forth, and I'll go ahead and get into the context, Jesus Christ as the quintessential example of humility and others-centered living. He runs up to it, in, starting in chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now he will go into... This incredible text about Jesus Christ setting him forth as the quintessential servant who didn't look after his own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He's living example number one of the kind of living Paul's calling for in verses 3 and 4. But in this paragraph, we're going to see a number of things about Jesus that I think are absolutely essential to our understanding of who he is and what he has done. Along the way, I'll add at least one thing that's not here in the text. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The first thing we need to say about Jesus is that he is, number one, the eternal Son of God. Jesus Christ is not merely a man who came into existence some 2,000 years ago. He is the one who existed in the form of God, who was equal with God. That word form is the Greek word morphe, and it doesn't merely mean the outward shape of something. In the Greek, it means the substance of something. Christ Jesus, who although he existed with the same stuff of God, who was equal with God. This delves into the mystery of the Trinity, does it not? That our God is one Who eternally exists as three persons God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said of himself in John 6, and ask yourself if you could say the same thing I have come down from heaven. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. That one has seen the Father. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Can you say that? And of course, John's gospel opens up with profound in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God and just a handful of verses later and the word became flesh and dwelt among us we'll talk about that in just a minute if you know the hymn oh come all ye faithful raise your hand We've all sung it, hadn't we? It's got four verses. We only sing three. You know what verse 2 says? I don't know why we take this one out. Make sure I get the tune right. God of God, light of light, Lo, he abhorreth not the virgin's womb. Very God begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God begotten, not created. Oh come, let us adore him. Any answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ, must first affirm, he is the eternal Son of God. Who secondly, became incarnate. Incarnate, carnal means flesh, in the flesh. The eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or acquired, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. A lot of ink spilled over that little word, emptied himself. It does not mean that he became any less of God. He didn't pour out his deity in order that he might become humanity. In fact, it's probably defined a little bit for us when it says in verse 7, but he emptied himself by adding. It's a crazy kind of math. It's subtraction by addition. He emptied himself. He, he gave of himself, taking to himself the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. What he did was, was he added to his divine nature a human nature. So that in the one person of Jesus Christ, we have two natures, fully God and fully man in one person forever. This is why Jesus is sometimes called the God-man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. God became one of us. This is what Christmas celebrates. Word of the Father now in flesh appearing. O oh come, let us adore him. We sing in a modern hymn, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, or we sing at Christmas, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who added to his divine nature, human nature, who in the womb of his virgin mother, Mary, became a man. And he went on to live a holy, obedient life. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We may be sliding in here the holy life of Jesus before we talk about his substitutionary death. But at least in that word obedient, we are reminded that this one, this word of the Father who became one of us lived holy and righteous and a godly life at every turn. The scripture says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It says in Hebrews 7, it was fitting for us to have a high priest Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, lived a life that it almost seems like the word admire is not strong enough. Even marvel is not strong enough. But we have in this man, Jesus Christ, one who the Apostle John said, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm not so sure Jesus would have been much to see as much as he would have been much to know. All the grace and the truth of the man You can read through the Gospels and you can see just an an astounding tenderness to the man and yet at the same time, a toughness to the man. One author said, it's majesty in meekness. It's the kindness of God and the severity, the grace of Jesus and yet his truth. He trusted and obeyed his heavenly father at every turn. He came to make God known to us. And maybe in a phrase, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I think we would have all, I hope we would have all looked at him and known him and said, what a man. Holy, righteous. His teaching ministry, his disciple making ministry. He was a friend to sinners. He was a healer, a miracle worker. He was something else. Who is Jesus, the eternal son of God, who became one of us, who lived a holy life and then died upon the cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle John saw him, or not the Apostle John, John the Baptist saw him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This text teaches us that Jesus Christ came to die. He was on a mission to die to give his life a ransom for many. This text simply states it, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Paul elsewhere in Philippians and of course all of the New Testament tell us why. Why did he die? John Piper wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died Upon the Cross. But probably at the core of it is to reconcile sinners like you and me back to God. That he came and died on a cross in our place and for our sins to become, and here's the fancy word, a propitiation in his blood Romans chapter 3 what does propitiation means it means a satisfaction of wrath your sins and mine as politically incorrect as it may be merit the wrath of God and we desperately need a Savior We desperately need someone to come and take that wrath for us. And indeed, Jesus Christ did. When he died upon the cross, that's the fact of it. What did it mean? The wrath of God was poured out upon him. Not for sins which he had done, but for sins that you and I had done. God made him who knew no sin, To be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As the modern hymn says, oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're about to celebrate Christmas. We're going to celebrate when God became a man in the, little, in the little manger of Bethlehem, but that baby came to die. Sometime March, April, whenever it lands in the calendar, we're going to celebrate Good Friday when the Son of God went to a cross and there cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because the sins of the world were laid upon him. He became sin. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God who became a man and lived a holy, righteous, godly life and who died a substitutionary death upon the cross for sinners like you and me. But that's not all. Verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. A handful of things I think are wrapped up in this, but the one, this point first, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He came and he died And three days later, he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. What did he say in John 10 about his life? No one takes it from me, I lay it down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back and indeed he did the son of God died for sinners and on the cross he said it is finished and in the resurrection his father said indeed it is arise my son What he had come to do, he accomplished. And God the Father raised him from the dead in vindication of all that Jesus Christ said about himself and claimed that he was going to do. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you just can't make sense of it all, you've got to handle or you've got to deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said himself, if Jesus is still in the grave, our faith is meaningless. But if indeed he is risen from the dead, that changes everything. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave, he rose again. Jesus is the Son of God who became one of us and lived a holy life and died a substitutionary death upon the cross and rose bodily from the dead. Number six. Here's the one that I'm going to sneak in there that's not in this Philippians text. We quickly pass over I think from I know we I know I do from the risen Christ to his ascension into heaven and we're getting there but I'd like to to remind us that after his resurrection and before his ascension Jesus was the great commissioner all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said, after his resurrection from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I think we just have got to remind ourselves as the people of God that verse has got to have some some bit of priority on what you and I give our lives to. It was his final words before he ascended into heaven. As Prof. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary would tell us, last words are lasting words. These were the final words. As Luke records it in Acts 1, Jesus is risen from the dead, spending time with his disciples. And they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That that crucifixion thing kind of threw us off. But now that you're risen... Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know. The times are the epochs which the Father has fixed by his authority. Here's what I want you to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. And then the Bible says he ascended into heaven. And they're looking. Wow. And an angel shows up and says, what are y'all doing looking up into the sky? Do what he told you to do. Essentially, I think that's what the angel meant. And they did. They went back to Jerusalem. They prayed and they waited for the Holy Spirit to come to empower them to be witnesses. And they began to proclaim Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, in the remotest parts of the earth. And it's been going on now for 2,000 years. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became a man who lived a holy life and died a substitutionary death and rose bodily from the dead and commissioned his church for the ages to make disciples to the ends of the earth and then number seven. He ascended and sat down at his Father's right hand. I think that's what Paul means when he says, for this reason, God highly exalted him. At least that's part of what he means. It's the exaltation of Jesus. The theologians will call it the ascension slash session. Session comes from the word seated. Jesus ascended back into heaven to a place of power and authority. He's there right now. He's alive forevermore. I love the way the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after He spoke long ages, long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How awesome is that? Jesus is alive. He ascended. He sat down. His work of redemption complete. He poured forth his spirit upon his people in Acts chapter 2 and has been doing it ever since. He gifts his people through the spirit to serve him and the body of Christ. He wonder of wonders. He intercedes for us. He prays for you right now. And he reigns and he rules. There's a great hymn about this. You ever wonder what what, what practical stuff can I get from the, the doctrinal truth that Jesus Christ is ascended and seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for me. It's when you sin and Satan is accusing your soul. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. You're no good, Mitch. You have no right to be exalted with Christ to the right hand of God, to be safe and secure in Jesus. Wrong. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Ever say, does Satan ever tempt you to despair because of the guilt within? You're no good. God can't love you. God can't use you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've thought. He knows where you've been. You're guilty. Depart. Give up. It's no use. You're done. Wrong. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Oh, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ died, but Jesus Christ came back to life. And Jesus Christ is alive right now interceding for you and for me. And through faith in him, we are in him. Our life is hid in Christ. I'm not righteous. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness. I'm not righteous, but he is. And my life is hid in him. Can I hear an amen? Amen. One more. He's coming again. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God who became a man who lived a holy life and died a substitutionary death upon the cross to pay for our sins, who rose bodily from the dead, who commissioned his church to make disciples to the end of the age, who ascended and sat down at the Father's right hand, whoever lives to intercede for us, who one day is coming God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a look to a coming day when Christ will come again. And every knee will bow in submission to him. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Some will bow and confess with gladness. Others will bow and confess with eternal regret. Jesus Christ is going to return To make all things right. To bring his judgment upon the evil in the world. And to establish a kingdom of righteousness that will never end. In 2 Thessalonians 1, this is strong biblical language. But this is the kind of stuff that can strengthen our soul. The the Thessalonian believers were suffering for their faithfulness to Jesus. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you, was believed. To this end also, we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Eight big ideas. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise. He is the word of the Father who became flesh and dwelt among us and gave himself to a holy life, and to a death upon the cross as a propitiation in his blood. And God raised him from the dead. And as Lord, he has commissioned us to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. He has ascended into heaven. He is there. And he's coming back. Brothers and sisters who know him, let us marvel, let us worship Let us rejoice, and let us, as the Apostle Peter would tell us, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And any friends who are here today who might not know him, today is a day of grace. His arms are open wide to any who will humble themselves and come. He was so, he is so full of life In the days on the earth, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. You can come to a Savior whose arms are open wide, who longs to forgive you, to lead you, to help you give you a new kind of life and to be with you through the good and the bad until the end when he will establish a kingdom forevermore and those who believe will reign with him let's pray and then let's sing Father in heaven Thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent for us and for our salvation. We glory in him. As Saul read at the beginning of our service, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. The Apostle Paul said he was the worst of all sinners and if, if Christ can save him, can forgive him and use him and make him new, then he can do it for anybody. So Father, if there's any here today that are wondering because of their sin, if you could have one such as them Oh God, would you mercifully open their eyes to the yes of the gospel? Yes, you can have them. You can forgive them. You can adopt them into your family. You can empower them through your spirit. You can open their eyes to the promises of the scriptures. You can be their friend. You can be their hope. You can be their God. Help them to see it. And and in seeing it with the eyes of faith, to take hold of Jesus Christ as their Savior today. And Lord, might the rest of us who do know him, as Paul reflected upon the mercies of Jesus towards him he couldn't help himself but said now to the king eternal immortal to the only God be honor and glory forever and forever may that be our response to our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we'll pray it in his name and for his glory amen